Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sci, a podcast under the Believe Podcast Network about black science fiction, fantasy, and staying on the same page in this marriage with Ben. Ben, how you doing today, boo? I'm doing amazing. Super excited to talk about my hero, one of them. N.K. Jemison literally is your hero. You just, like, completely get smitten when you're reading her and we're talking about her so just so you know listeners today is episode 32 of the sci-fi side and we read the book real long book but real good book the city we became before we get started into this episode two quick things one we're going to do our absolute best to avoid any spoilers for this book so everybody can appreciate it and secondly like i did last week we want to start reading those apple podcast ratings and y'all are going to keep sending them our way so here's a quick podcast rating from mkb101477 a lot of numbers but here you go a must listen. I saw Amber and Ben on TikTok and loved their videos. I was excited to find out they also host the Sci-Fi Sci. This podcast centers black storytelling in science fiction and fantasy. Their commentary is smart, witty, and entertaining. You know who they're talking about when they say the wit, right, Ben? They can't be talking about us. They are. I am very funny. Everybody knows I'm, I'm a comedy queen. In a slapstick, Three Stooges kind of way. No, because they would have said funny, but they said witty. Witty means like clever. Witty is like, oh, they're smart funny, a.k.a. I'm smart funny. Anyway, skinny way, why don't we get on to why we decided to read this book? Give us a little bit of background because you're a N.K. Jemison stan and as am, I, as am I, but you're the originator. Well, let's go back to the time when we took our engagement photos at 53rd Street Books in Hyde Park. What a good time, right? Yeah, too bad we had to fire our photographer because he also then didn't remember the wedding date and he was an hour late to that shoot, but it was a beautiful time. I don't remember any of that. You don't? No, but I'm not one to hold grudges, so it makes sense why I would not remember. I'm not holding grudges, but photography is expensive, so it's like, just do me a solid and come on, on t- coming on time and remembering what day. Anyway, skin- oh, sorry. No, you're good. Go. You know what I learned? I, you know what I learned from this book, though? Yeah, the City We Became. There's a great line where interrupting women is like sexist bullshit. That's a line from the book. It's great. So I'm going to try not to interrupt you because you're a woman- and it's sexist bullshit, so keep going. To be fair, I interrupted you, but I just wanted to note that, like, if you need to fire your wedding photographer, it's never too late. That's what that's what the takeaway was. But go back to talking about 53, 53rd Street Books because that was a magical day. It was. And when we were done taking the engagement photos where you, like, walk down to this little basement area, I ended up getting the full set, uh, the full series, the Broken Earth trilogy, which... Is so good. It's N.K. Jemison series that actually I think it was her third trilogy. Uh, so she had written a duology, and then she had wrote written a, the Inheritance trilogy, which I had all also read, and then she wrote the Broken Earth trilogy, which won the very prestigious Hugo Award three years in a row, and she's the only writer to ever have done that. Was that seriously the first day that you bought those books when we took that photo shop? Mm-hmm. You, I think you had bought Kindred and I bought the three, uh, the three set, and which is why I wanted uh, the the book on our wedding cake. We had two sort of covers on our wedding cake. It was the the first book, the fifth season, and then the bluest eye. Yes, our our entire wedding cake was just two thick ass books. Oh. I really didn't know that was like I'm. I'm learn. I, I love doing the show with you because I I learn more about you than 
like just as much as the audience. But I really didn't know that that was the day that you bought that book. Yeah, and it was like forty dollars more than I, it would have been if I bought it on Amazon because you know these private bookstores that well the you know small business bookstores has to charge more. But it was well worth it. I think it was like eighty bucks for the whole the whole set, which was a lot. Well, I I would love to use that as an opportunity to talk a little bit about like how N.K. Jemison is like. She ain't no, you know, paperback novella kind of chick. She is going to have, like, those books are very long, and I feel like maybe it's, like, her signature style to write trilogies only or, you know, like, long series book. Well, she is highly disciplined. I Before she became, like, incredibly famous, uh, she would get off work. She worked for an organization, I think, if my memory serves me, from like the hundred of interviews that I've listened and read by her. Uh, basically, it was like to support, uh, I think, first generation college students. And she would do that work all day. And then she'd get off work, go to a coffee shop and write 30,000 words. Like every single day. Every single day. And yeah. And so like when she came out with the Broken Earth trilogy, like, yeah, it was really famous and it got really popular. But she'd been putting in the work for a really long time. And that sort of made me think about you because now for you, you know, getting into acting or whatever, uh, you you've been acting your whole life though right and so you've been it's not like you just blew up even though like you you gained a lot of followers over very quickly over the past couple of months or like a lot of recognition and you're booking commercials over the past couple of months or you know the year but you've been putting the work for a while yeah i mean but this is different like i remember so you know i love samantha irby and i read i would i would read her text messages anything she puts her hand on and she just similarly is a an author who like just writes every single day so I was like oh I'm gonna try to be disciplined this way so I set like a, a reminder in my phone to write for 15 minutes every day and I think I did like two days of that I was like this takes a lot of discipline to like get up Toni Morrison same she's like I did my best writing at 2 a.m 3 a.m 4 a.m when I had to take care of my two kids like momming started the minute they woke up so like the fact that people can write the bluest eye at 2 a.m., the fact that N.K. Jemison can get off of her full-time job and then go put in 30,000 words a day at a coffee shop is insane. And also, didn't you tell me before, let me know if, if we need to cut this, if this was not her, but she sort of like positions herself in these writing groups that hold each other accountable where they like read each other's things and then they like tear each other's words up. Like, Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, she was part of this writer's group. I forgot the name of it, but, uh, you know, well-known, some well-known science fiction writers. And apparently they were, like, brutal and, like, taking each other's work apart because that's what you need to, like, step up to that next like, level. Like a writer's room, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is in the beginning of 2020, I heard of something that I've been dying to go on ever since I heard. It's called the Joko cruise and the idea of going on a cruise for me has always been absolutely disgusting like just nasty people getting just drinking rum all day and like doing Zambia. nothing and sitting around and however the joko th cruise as you can imagine i've been on several cruises right and, they, and i loved them. It, it it makes sense because you like to laze 
You, you can't do 30,000 words a day. I'm just kidding. No, you probably you're can. Actually, you're kind of not kidding. You're, I'm, I'm going to kind of let you drag me on that. But yeah, so so what's this cruise different since you're a, a cruise judger? Well, when I heard about it, I think I heard about it from N.K. Jemison's tw- uh, Twitter and she was on it, you know, giving talks. And I was like, I want to go on this. And I ended up, I think it was like late February, I ended up seeing a spot that we could potentially go on but you were working at second city so you're like i can't you know take off at this time and it turned out that right when the cruise ended which is basically a science fiction nerd cruise but it's not like a star trek or star wars cruise it's a gaming cruise it's uh, a filk filk music which is you know nerd folk music it is a science fiction book cruise it's more I would say it's more um, like intense as far as the science fiction nerddom goes. It's a cruise for nerds. Anyway, Are there panels and stuff like there would be at a, yeah, a Comic Con. I would, yeah, I would. Well, no, Comic Con is so about like selling shit. Where this cruise is more about co-constructing new theories about um, this certain kind of like Ben Bova book or something. You know, it's more very specific to like science fiction. And it would be your expectation that if we went on one of these nerd cruises that I would accompany you? I think you would love it. Oh, my gosh. Do they have drinks and, and, yeah. and all this like pool stuff? Because I'm going to be lost. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like you, you could still drink your rum and sit on the beach and or sit on the the by the pool and lays but then also <laughs> like i get to go interact with nerds it just literally that. as long as they have a buffet i can do it so march 2022 i actually have been looking up prices for tickets so oh my gosh. we're gonna go i'm so excited well I, no before don't don't do anything until i literally email their staff and say like hey i'm amber this has been we do videos i, I i'm gonna I'm 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 get us on that cruise Okay. So also the other the other thing about this cruise is the big thing is that NK Jemison was on this cruise. She was tweeting about the cruise and tweeting her interactions. It looked just like a really positive experience. And the guy who uh you know ran it was one of my favorite filk artists, really well known. He sort of made it mainstream is um named after him, Jonathan Colton, Jonathan Colton. Uh, who writes this great filk music? And can I sing you one of his songs? Oh, oh, all right. Uh, so yeah, it is lo- listeners. I pr- uh, please hang on in there. I don't know how this song's gonna go, but please do not turn off this podcast when this happens. I love you, but okay, go right. ahead. So go the ahead. song goes. It's about like uh, I think it's like reply your brains. Okay. So it's like a reply your brains. So it goes. All we want to do is eat your brains. We're not unreasonable. I mean, no one's going to eat your eyes. Din, din. All we want to do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse. Oh, something like that. Anyway, I love... That's love- music? Well, yeah. It's, you know... Aww. Yeah, it's super cute. It's super cute and... Uh, it's just very nerdy and awesome. And I used to listen to him all the time in college. So when I heard he did this cruise that all the great like science fiction authors that I love, N.K. Jemison was there, uh, John Scalzi, 
Um, another great writer. How does she even relax on the cruise? I'm sure so many people are coming well, up to her, asking her for autographs and well, pictures. It's work. That's a good point. You know, like these authors who go on this, oh, it's work. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they're getting, when you pay to go on the cruise, you're paying for the cruise. You're also paying for interactions with these authors. So she's working. Got it. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's that, that's a job. It's not like her cruise. It's her, it's a work. So anyway, I really want to do that. But you know, Talking about putting in work, it, it hasn't been always easy for N.K. Jemison, and I've listened to a lot of interviews with her, Women and Children First, which is the bookstore right by our house. I know. You were going to see her in person I before was. the pandemic, and they thankfully they still ha- hosted it virtually, but that really sucks. Yeah, it did, but uh, so what was I saying? Okay, yeah, so it hasn't been easy for her because... Even though she's an amazing writer and, you know, people will publish her text now, you know, like she can get anything published. Uh, She wrote, I think, one of her first series, The Dream Blood Duology, which is the only one I haven't read. I need to read that. Mm -hmm. Is sort of your standard fantasy, you know, novel, two novels. And she couldn't get it published because it it was – and the reason – and she's still bitter about this. I a ten year, you know, ten years ago, I read an interview with her when she came out with the Inheritance trilogy, and she talked about this experience where she couldn't get this book taking place in, I think, Egypt. It's like Egyptian-based book, but it it's all the standard beats of fantasy. She's she was mentioning this ten years ago, and and then when I heard her at Women and Children's First, she brought it up again. Like this is something that still sort of I think was a traumatizing experience for her and absolutely and even with all her like fame and acknowledgement that still is something that rejection because she knew she knew she is she was a great writer and we now we now the world knows at least the American science fiction community knows and you know the European science fiction community knows and all the you know that book who's been accessible in different languages, but they when know. You know so intimately how talented and brilliant you are and somebody's just like, no. Do you think, uh, I, I'm not sure, we didn't see, look this up before, but do you think prior to publishing that book, like when she published that book 10 years ago, her name on the book was not N.K. Jemison? Do you think she made it shorter to like, sort of like a, a James Tiptree or a J.K. Rowling? Do you think she was like, I'm getting discriminated against based on my name, so I need to sort of, I'm, I might be speculating, but I'm always curious about that. Uh, I think there's a story there, but, and there is an answer to that question. I remember hearing uh, some, you know, an audience question once about that to her, uh, but I, I can't tell you. Ugh, like, I, I can't really know. Um, but let's just, you know, let's go ahead and jump into the summary of the book. Yeah, the summary of the book. And that was great, Ben. Uh, one of the one of the questions that I heard from uh, one of the big overarching influences of writing this book is that someone asked her that about the rot at the core of a society, which she sort of deals with in the Broken Earth trilogy. And so an audience member asked her, you know, what is the rot of the core at our society? And the city we became, right? Great An question. An audience member asked that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and one of uh, the city we became is really the first full length novel she's written that takes place in this world. Like usually she's writing like in other worlds or other realms or a far, far, far distant future. So this is the first 
um, full-length novel where she's dealing with our present day. And she just went right in. She's like, oh, white supremacy. I was Period. like, <laughs> so that's sort of what it's, it's like. Final answer, white supremacy. <laughs> well, final answer, white supremacy, <laughs> which I, I, I thought was pretty brilliant. Anyway, so summary. Um, so basically cities in this world of the novel um, after growth and develop, uh, eventually sort of select avatars and become sentient. Um, and these avatars start representing the city. So, for example, New York City at this stage has started to develop sentience and has chosen six avatars, one for each borough, and then one, a primary avatar, to unite them all and sort of, uh, you know, bring the will of the city uh for you know to to enact the will of the city unfortunately though some eldritch horror and the vision of a pale white lady the archetype of karen you could say has come to new york city to destroy it and eat it alive thankfully the avatar of sao paulo has come to support the six avatars of new york city to unite them and stop this unknown force from destroying new york city dun 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 very i, I love this it because there's we, we've sort of seen some things like this, which I'm sure we're going to get into. But like I think about like, did you watch Captain Planet as a kid? Yeah, that. Yeah. OK. Does it give you Captain yes. Planet vibes where like there's a main Captain Planet. But if we all put our rings together, our we powers combine. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes, yes. So I really like that there are all these boroughs. And also, you know what else, Ben? That's a risk because I mean. You know, a shit ton of people live in New York City and they and they rep New York City hard. So, like, if somebody wrote a book based in Chicago and only chose certain neighborhoods, like, I'm sure it would be an all out brawl. So I'm sure she really had to, like, sit down and be like, I have to, you know, I'm a New Yorker. So I, I have to very uh, critically pick which boroughs I represent because somebody in Astoria or Soho or whatever the fuck is going to be like, why wasn't our borough in the book or um. So I'm sure she got some like pushback when Staten Island was one that was chosen. Maybe I don't know. You're a New Yorker, so you know the deal. Uh, yeah. So she, I think she addresses that head on a little bit because she, she has a character who like is from New York, Jiz, who New Jersey, who's from New York, from ah, from New York, Jersey. That's so funny how I keep on New saying. York, Jersey. Yeah. So basic that I just made that up. Basically, New Jersey is right across. Uh, you know, the Hudson from New York and you can be there in like 15 minutes or whatever if there's no traffic, probably more like 30 minutes um, right into Manhattan. And people from New Jersey can be New York, more New York than someone from like Staten Island, which she deals with head on, you know. Yeah, because Vanessa in the book is like the Jersey figure. Yeah. So to be fair, uh, to, to recap this summary, the boroughs are Queens, Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, thank you. And then Staten Island. Staten Island. And then there's like this, they call, uh, in the book they label- uh, The primary the avatar. The primary which avatar. all of New York. Which it, is all of New York. And then Sao Paulo, where's Sao Paulo again? I know it's in Latin America, Brazil. I, I will look that up in a second. But Sao Paulo City has been destroyed, right? It's like now underwater. And so he's sort of acting as this like, I'm, I'm going to cities that are still completely functioning to sort of- warn them and prepare them for what's coming because like new york new orleans is underwater sort of like i don't know lost city of atlantis vibes Mm -hmm. like because this is like in the future and states like new orleans and florida will 
you know, if global warming keeps happening, we'll be completely ice underground, underwater. I think this is like a, a little, a little bit into the future, but maybe, um, maybe like a little bit to the right of our universe. You know, like just a little bit to the right. Okay. Uh, but yeah. So, like, what was your first impressions of this book? Oh, I love it. I, I, I like when I get a feel for. A, a city in a book when I haven't been there. I really appreciate that. I also think it was a great transition because we <clears throat> we recently covered uh, Men in Black International, which was a total flop, but because we just refreshed ourselves with MIB 1, 2, and 3, it was nice to sort of... It, it gave me better visuals as I was reading it because it was like the alien in the city because N.K. Jemison brilliantly describes this, like, what Ben calls eldritch horror figure... In, so N.K. Jemisin has these different chapters through the eyes of those characters. So we got each of the boroughs, you're saying each of the boroughs. Yeah. Um, and so we got multiple descriptions of what this horror figure looked like. So like a basic uh, description would be like a Ursula style, like it's lots of tentacles around the city and things like that. But one character like Iceland, uh, Staten Island would describe it as like these like daffodil fronds and one character would describe it as tendrils and one character would describe it as like wiggly gligglies or like so it was really cool to like the the attention to detail that she paid of course people from different boroughs would refer to these tentacles as different things and 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 those are the things that just really make a novel like brilliant and without the header of the chapter i could tell whose voice each uh narrative was in which i thought was really great and i'll also say Two more things about what I loved about it. Uh, I love that we watched The Old Guard this year because it was these like immortal characters that all came together and found each other and are stronger together and are fighting this big cause together. I love stuff like that. I think really this book taught us that like group projects can work. I think that was the takeaway because, you know, I'm, I'm from public school. So group projects are always a fail. But this book taught me group projects are like not horrible sometimes. Last third point about my first impressions is the immortal dragging of H.P. Lovecraft that she had, like, infused and threaded in this book, I thought was really dope because, you know, she knows her sci-fi community is going to be reading this book, and I just like that she took some really, like, accurate historical jabs at this man. What were your first impressions? Well, I think she, this book is sort of part of what I'm going to call, like, city spec fiction, mm-hmm. um, where basically I'm thinking of Unlondon by China Mieville, where there's this, like, mirror London with like sentient umbrellas, which is like, it's a sort of a children's book, really great book. Uh, Reminded me of Neverwhere, which is the Neil Gaiman book. Again, where there's this like whole underground lair of London and it's being run by like angels and other entities. And then- Is Through the Looking Glass similar to that? It's like a different parallel universe? No, I I wouldn't say that because when you read Unlondon and when you read Neverwhere, you're getting this like flip side of London. It still re- remains its Londonness, where through the Looking Glass or um, Alice in Wonderland, you're getting a, a, just a completely different world that you would call that portal fantasy, where you're entering through like a different portal. Where this, I would say, it's like mirror universe, like us, like Jordan Peele's. Yeah, us. Like, you know exactly. Okay, cool. And unlike us, though, these this city spec fiction is specifically about a city. And um, also Hellboy 2, The Golden Army is also like that, where there's, you can put on these like 
glasses and you can see that you know this bag lady is actually a you know a scottish troll or or whatever right so there's this there's this city that you see as a tourist but the more you're within the city you start to see this other flip side and we even see that here right you know we people come to chicago and they're like oh let's go to the bean fine you go to the bean but if you really sit here and you go to rogers park right you get to go to the leather museum and archives and get to look at pervertibles which is like kitchenware that has been turned into sex toys like that's the part of chicago that you don't get to see that's like what we would call the mirror side of chicago and so there's this one layer where you see it you know the sears tower but you stay here long enough and you start to discover other parts of it. I mean, I think it just reigns so true for a black person to write a world where there's like, you know, the world that most people see. And then there's another world that only a specific few people see. I, I'm sure uh, like that was very intentional and, and, and crazy relatable. But it it's we we all do see two worlds. There's this one scene in like, say, The Last Dance with Carrie. Washington talking to Julia Stiles' character, which she was sort of made to be the villain in that scene, but everybody was like, no, that's pretty right. And she was like, Sarah, look the hell around. There's there's two worlds. There's your world and there are world. We know different. And it was like, oh, she's being mean to her. But it's like, no, that is literally like what's happening. So to that point, uh, N.K. Jemison has said very explicitly that she was thinking of uh, W.E.B., Du Bois. Oh, the double consciousness. The, the double yes. consciousness, right, from the, you know, the seminal, um, the souls of black folk, which I don't know why we don't have that book in our house. So I, I feel like we should, because I've definitely read that. I, I, I found, well, it's coming from Women and Children's First. So go ahead. Did we get it? Oh. Yeah, get it from Women and Children First. We got like a nice Please hardcover. Please say what that is. <laughs> women, oh yeah, Women and Children First is a feminist bookstore. I yes. think I said it at the top of the show. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's but fine. Sometimes it's, it's like, get your books from women and children first. It's like, which woman, which children? Yeah, it's a feminist bookshop, like one of eight in in the country. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was sort of my first takeaway is that there's this side of the city that a tourist will see, but there's this other part where you can only see if you you're sort of in it. And you know what? So last night, like after I was like binging this book, getting it done, finishing it, I head over. I got I was getting a little distracted. So I head over to Big Chicks, which is uh, the bar right around our house. It's an art bar, by the way, which I didn't realize it didn't really register to me uh, until I walked over there. But I'm walking over there and I like look over and I see like Sean's restaurant, which is like the Pakistani Indian um, restaurant where uh, the samosas during Ramadan after sundown are like the best in the entire city. And they'd be mad as hell that you order them, too. They're like, why are you ordering samosas this late at night? It's like, that's how you know it's going to be good. Yeah. And people mad to take your order. They're also (laughs) mad if you're ordering in English, right? Because it's like where all the the cabbies hang out, right? So it's a very, the food there is so good. And you're just seeing this other part of the city when you walk by it. And I'm walking down the street and I look to the left and there's these like old brownstones. And in the book, The City We Became, she mentions how like brownstones are a big part of um, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. And I'm looking at these brownstones and I start to think like, you know, do, do these brownstones have a soul? Like what is the soul of this like Edgewater neighborhood that we live in. And then I walk into Big Chicks and I look around and I see um, uh, uh, a millennier, millennier, an original millennier. And for those who don't know, millennier is this obscene photographer of the 20th century. 
um like he would do weird shit like there was a legend that he would varnish his paintings with his semen um and and the painting the picture i was sitting next to is he had like manipulated the image it's called like the the petite vampire le petite vampire he manipulated the image so he is like having sex with himself uh like the ultimate like self-masturbation he was obsessed with masturbation absolutely terrible human but his artwork is truly profane in the most beautiful sense and horrific sense of the word we are in no way condemning masturbation but he was just like yeah i mean he, like having sex with his daughter yeah or well crazy. yeah and then also like he had sex with his like dead sister's body oh like he was an awful but there's an original painting of that anyway the the point being is yeah. that I I walk into Big Chicks and I've and I've gone by we've gone to this bar a hundred times so I really just sat with the paintings there like a lot of this original art and uh, the owner is a collector she trades them out and I was just sort of amazed that there's this other level to our city of Chicago in the same way that there's this other level to our city to you know New York City the city we became also I. Another place I thought you were going with that point, there's a, a character in the story who is basically possessed by this, like, tendrilled Ursula-style figure, and it's uh, it's this, like, white guy with, like, he she calls him, like, Strawberry Man Bun. This white guy who's trying to get his art put up in this, uh, the Bronx, like, art center, which is strictly there to promote, like, black and brown art, and this guy's created, like, what we'll call slasher art coming off of the Them episode. It's just, like depictions of like black pain and trauma and pain and trauma of marginalized groups and trying to get it hung in the center and Bronca who's the art director is like no like get the fuck out of here so he goes on this big like this is reverse racism campaign obviously he's being possessed by this evil spirit but I I could imagine that creator that you just talked about being like why don't you hang this like this is my art this is a, it's like you don't get entitled to hang your shitty art in here just because like for shock factor and to traumatize people well yeah and sort of let's get into the themes we've talked a little bit about double consciousness but i want to talk a little bit about what you brought up is there's this whole theme of like whom represents the city Right. For some reason, the city has chosen its avatars for specific reasons. And I don't want to you know, give all those reasons away. But there's this great scene where Strawberry Man Bun, which is the name of the character, is like, hey, why won't you hang up my art? You know, I'm actually from the Bronx. And he's there with like his like white people collective. And they're all saying, like, we live in the Bronx. We're an art collective. And one of them was like, I even grew up here. And at one point, um, uh, Bronca, who is uh, the avatar of the Bronx, her response to that is like, oh, you probably, you know, grew up in, uh, you know, freaking, um, I think she's she's like, oh, you grew up in Riverdale, which is like far north Bronx. It's right on the Hudson, right across from like Van Cortland Park. A little bit south is like Fordham University. It's just really, really nice. And I, and I started to think about here in Chicago, you know, you go to like I'm from Chicago. It's like, bitch, you live in Evanston. <laughs> well, not a, not only that, because Riverdale is part of New York City. But I'm thinking a mirror to that would be Hyde Park. Uh, like you're you grew up in a Kenwood mansion. Yeah, I you live go in to the lab park. school. Ooh, well, no, me. you didn't live in that Hyde Park. I'm talking about the Kenwood mansions. You live in Kenwood mansions. You know, a block from like Obama's house. You never have to ride the bus. The L doesn't even go through there. And you go through to uh, the Chicago Lab School, 
Like you never, you know, mm-hmm. that, how can you say you're like from? Like if you meet Chicago people outside the city and then you say like, I'm from Hyde Park, which obviously, you know, I'm from Georgia, I, you're from New York, but when Chicago to Chicago, people go toe to toe in other cities, they're like, Hyde Park, like you ain't real Chicago. Like that is definitely a debate. Yeah, and exactly. And that's sort of something that she addresses head on is like, they're, they're, technically Riverdale is part of the city, but what is truly representative of the city? And- at one level, right, she sort of she gets these five characters and they're all, you know, variously representative. But I thought what I found so interesting was that there is a, a tertiary character who's like born in Riverdale, grew up there, but he's less New York than um, one of the avatar, the avatar of Queens, Padmini, who has only lived a third of her life in New York City, I think at one point. And except Padmini embodies New York City as like this incredible place of like bringing your culture into it, you know, of sort of passing through. And I thought that was such a powerful image. And she deals with that uh, throughout the book. Right. Well, I mean, because that that struggle is so unique to the New York experience or to any you know, inner major inner city U.S. city here. I I really think that N.K. Jemison like address those themes of gentrification very well and it's it's interesting because um i'm not sure if you've seen like a lot of those tiktok videos where black people will like march through harlem be like black people used to live here black people at, at like interrupting these white people who are brunching now because they're like yeah i just bought my new house in sobro which is like south brocks and people are like you are here because people had to be pushed out and you're just like enjoying your brunch. Meanwhile, people are like displaced from their homes. And I, I think this book did a really delicate dance with that. Yeah. And what I appreciate about this is that Manhattan Manny, who represents the embodiment, the avatar of Manhattan, mm-hmm. uh, he's sort of new to New York City. You know, and there's sort of like this, I, I won't share anything, but there's like a secret of like why he came there. He like left you know, a dark past. Um, He is sort of suffering from amnesia. So his story is fascinating to begin with. So she's not knocking on like people coming to the city. So there's this delicate balance of like being a genderfier and being someone who joins a city. And so Manny is very new to the city, but he still becomes this embodiment of Manhattan. And I thought she did this amazing balance to that. I do want to bring up an, another theme is this whole idea of like how when you go to a city, cities change you. Like mm. everything, yeah. right? And so uh, Manny, at one point, there's a line where um, he's sort of new to New York City. And she uh, he's sort of having this feeling where he's feeling completely connected to the city. And I'll read you this line where... Um, He's thinking uh, there are contacts in his phone that he isn't interested in calling, texts he does not mean to answer, which is simply implying that he's left all his old past. He's left everything. He's left everything in the past. And I know you coming to Chicago from small town Athens, Georgia, must have been a similar experience, but you still keep in contact with people from Athens, where for me, yeah, you from, said fuck them folks. I didn't say fuck them <laughs> folks. But for me, I don't really keep in touch with people from Albany or my church. I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. 
or, or from, you know, my college town because I went to a Christian college. I'm not a practicing, you know, I'm not very religious Christian. I'm not a missionary, which is I went to a missionary school. And so I sort of, I felt like I left a lot of that when I came to a city and sort of broadened my horizons. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? It's hard because you're, you're excited to be in a new city. And so you just want to jump in head first. And then sometimes you'll call back home and you'll be reminded of like some of those like backwards ways or like, I still always want to regularly call my family and stay grounded and connected to where I came from. But it's really hard when you have found yourself in a new city and you don't you can just completely be yourself and you're learning new things every day like even when people come to visit me in Chicago they're like oh I like my you know my brother is like all day now I wouldn't say like backwoods Georgia but he is a country boy like all day long he's an engineer but he's a country boy and that's time he came to Chicago he just like fell in love he was like oh my god I don't know shit like like we went, we took him to the art institute. He was like, I don't think I've ever been to an art museum, and I thought I would hate it, but I loved it. Or just everything, right? Like I bought my dad a, a fucking bidet for his birthday, and everybody in the family like rolled their eyes at me, and they're just like, "Here you go, like big city girl," which is like everybody in the city doesn't even. Everybody in Chicago does not even have a bidet. We just do have one, and we fucking love it. Are bidets like a city kind of thing? They're not, but I think there's a level of like elitism and bouginess that comes with a bidet that people like blame on the city but obviously my dad fucking loves that bidet now but but it's it's just stuff like that like I'll buy my my parents things and gifts and experiences that they're like we don't want to go to a Michelin star restaurant like we'll we'll go to wherever around the corner which it's like we'll yeah, go to Red Lobster or right something, and like... I'm like no either you're we're gonna go to Harold's Chicken or I'm gonna take you to a really nice like there are no Michelin restaurants in my hometown obvi so when my parents come here like let's slap it on a credit card and ball out but you know how our parents are they're like thinking of money and thinking of things and we're just like we're living in these cities like I this city has swallowed me up yeah I you know, the whole thing of Michelin stars, though, is that gender is Michelin stars gentrification. I wonder about that because the whole Michelin star system is from what I've heard yeah. um, and what have been explained to be can be pretty racist. Oh, and classist. I, it, so if it's I, an institution in these U.S. of A, then I, I could only imagine it's probably very sexist as well. Okay, the last theme I want to talk about before we jump into some of our characters, our favorite characters, uh, is this whole idea of theosis. You ever hear of theosis? Um, I'm going to guess it has something to do with religion, but no, I I don't actually know what theosis is. Uh, It's this cool idea in Greek Orthodox Christianity uh, where when you become more Christian, you actually become more Christ-like and therefore more divine. So it's a process of deification. Okay. And so there are some verses in the Bible, Psalms 82, 6 specifically, and John 10, 34, uh, which basically says, you know, you are gods or you you will become like a god. And uh, I love that idea because I think it really plays with this whole idea of like, what is a god? And a big part of this um, this novel is these avatars becoming gods. And N.K. Jemisin has, you know, written a lot about gods. The Inheritance Trilogy is all about gods. 
uh, and what is a god? And a god, in my mind, becomes like a personification of an idea, or it becomes a personification of a place. And there's this great line where N.K. Jemison writes, you know, gods are people. And she references, um, you know, the understanding of gods in China, like there's a god of a wall, or like the way people understand gods in India. It's not this Christian idea of a god. Or this, it's not this like singular, what Sing- is it, like mono... Monotheism. Uh, monotheism, yeah. Right. It's not monotheistic. Or the understanding of a god is just very, very different. And she's sort of playing with that idea in here, which I, I love, like how gods are not this all-powerful beings, but they're representatives of a specific kind of thing. Uh, and Terry Pratchett does a lot in his Discworld series with that. And so I like that she's she's playing with this. I think um, you have sort of explained that concept to me when we've been watching like Star Wars and how you get excited about like when I think it was like not Rogue One, but th- there's some sort of element of like we thought only specific people of specific lineages could be Jedi and then Roe or Rey comes in and she sort of proves like no, other people can have the force too. Or, right, yeah, but, but then, then they fuck that up. They fucked that up because apparently she does have the cor- correct lineage. Oh, that's dumb. Yeah, it is stupid. That doesn't give any of us hope. Um, but N.K. Jemison did. <laughs> wait, yeah, can you explain that? I'm, I don't, I'm not really following your through line on that. So the through line is that this, I think N.K. Jemison like showed in this book that anybody could be a city god. Like anybody who is embodying the city and embodying the culture can be a city god. Whereas in the past we've been taught like people of certain lineages and certain royalty and mm. certain bloodlines are yeah, the only I ones who s- are allowed to saying. rule and have power. And so when it came to like Jedi talk, you know, I don't know, that's your lane. But you were excited that one of these store wa- store wars, one of these Star star Wars, one of these Star Wars movies sort of addressed that it's not just like this Skywalker lineage. It could be other people in the world do have the force and can learn to control the force. But then they sort of like went back on that and fucked it up. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's what the city we became is that it's not a specific lineage. Like anybody can embody um, the heart of the city. And it's interesting in this book, some people or some places are more city ish or have more cityness i think uh she writes like she coins the word cityness uh and i love 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 that idea let's um go ahead and get into characters so all right i love personification of these like burrows i love personification of inanimate objects and one of my favorite shows right now um, it's called Doom Patrol on HBO. And there's a character on that show called Danny the Street, which is like a gender neutral street street that provides like a safe haven for folks who have been abused and hurt. And so there's like trans folk who show up and queer folk and anybody like people with mental illness are able to go to Danny the Street. And Danny the Street goes by they, them pronouns. And the way Danny the Street communicates is on like billboards, like manipulating letters and Danny is like a true character. They're an actual character in the show. And it's so cool. And not like a tertiary character. No, not, That's I mean, great. yeah, it, it's just really, but there's no, I mean, Danny the street, there's no face 
right? But it's oh, there's no face. But Dan- the character is alive in the, in the story. Yeah, yeah. Danny is literally a street. Oh, oh and okay. So you like walk down Danny, and then you see, um, you know, what is that movie theater? Bill, you know, moniker. yeah, you see that, and the way Danny communicates is like the letters on that change, or the street signs will like switch. Oh, that's cool. And so there's no, the physical body of Danny is the actual street, and so Danny will like have stores that are open for people to come in, and the street sort of just shows up out of nowhere, yeah. like just pops around different places. So you'll be walking in the middle of a cornfield, and then you walk onto Danny the street. Oh, that's really awesome. right. And so I I love that idea, and I feel like the city we became sort of develops that idea because the city is, right? The city has its avatars, but the city is still the city and is still a character in and of itself. I like that. I There was this uh, on a completely separate, um, related but not as serious note, there was this like trend, maybe it started on TikTok, where people would be like, if Wrigleyville was a person, and obviously it would show some like Broey or whatever, or it's like if Schomburg was a person. And so <laughs> what, I what really is love what do their avatars look right? Uh, like, you, right? You already know it would be like if Streeterville was a person. I mean, obviously in most cases it was meant to uh, make fun of people, but like, or even in Chicago, it's like if Out West was a person, because you know, like there's always just like West Side versus South Side Chicago beef. So I, I really love when people are like, this is like, this person just truly embodies like West Philly. Like you're so, you're so rich. Like, and you feel that when you meet those people, like sometimes those people are like Uber drivers. I love talking to an Uber driver that just knows their city so well. And they're like, I don't I don't need this freaking GPS to go down Lower Wacker. Like it's, well, it's technically not Uber drivers, it's cab drivers. It's, um, but I, Thank I, you for that correction. I, I, I had know, my hand up for that. Because Uber like, drivers, Uber, they don't Uber know drivers what don't know what the fuck they're but, doing. But sometimes I just love hailing a cab and hopping in, and they're like, where do you want to go? And I'm like, Foster and Sheridan. And I'm, you know, I'm south, I'm west, and they're like, I got you. And they and they know Pilsen, and they know uh, Logan Square, and they just know their city. I love interacting with and, people like that. And and there is a cab driver in the city we became who sort of knows the city really well in that in that respect. Oh yes, I forgot her name, but she she shows up in this like old er, school cab earlier in the book, like within the first yes. ten twenty pages. Yes, or where yeah. she's like, "You want to take the FDR to where? Like that's not gonna work." Like <laughs> I, I love when people are like, "No, motherfucker, I know this city, no GPS, uh, I can get you there." Okay, I have to ask you because uh, there's a character Bronca, the avatar of the Bronx. She is 70 years old and is like a stonewall, um, you know, veteran, uh, has been part of this woman's artist collective. But when I was reading this, I was like, when was the last time I read a book about a badass woman? And she's Lenape, indigenous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in her 70s. And and she's a lesbian. I I just haven't. What about, oh, you said stonewall. Yeah. 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 I was like, Bronca is. You know how you try to uh, cast characters in your head if sure. this is a whatever. So Bronca for me just started as Candy Muse. <laughs> and then slowly, obviously, like, well, Candy's not 70 or a woman or whatever. But that, that sort of, like, swagger and attitude is very uh, Candy Muse from Drag Race. But eventually I sort of got around to, like, a, a N.K. Jemison type figure in my head or, like, a Whoopi Goldberg figure. I know that she's not uh, black, but these... These older women, they're they're like, I am not moving. Like, I know what the fuck is up. Or even at one point in the book, she had been sort of like doxxed because this like reverse racism 
uh, you know, vigilantes on the internet are like, if she doesn't hang our art, like, we'll bomb her home or whatever. They're like bullying her, harassing her. And she's like, Try try not to give too many spoilers, but yeah, yeah, yeah I, right. I think. And she's like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm I'm not I'm standing like ten toes down in what I believe. Like, this is my city. This is my block. This is my hood, and I I really fuck with Bronca. Yeah, Bronca is is absolutely the best. Uh, I think we got to talk about one of my favorite scenes. Uh, Brooklyn, who I, I was reading Brooklyn. Brooklyn used to be an MC, MC free. And she's grown up and be as sort of gotten to, into politics. And at one point, in you know, the book. in the book and uh, N.K. Jemison has come, you know, out saying, you know, uh, MC Free, a.k.a. Brooklyn, is a complete inspiration of MC Light. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I verified that because I was reading this. I'm like, this sounds so familiar. But at one point, the way Brooklyn like fights this Lovecraftian horror that's sort of haunting New York City is by like spitting rhymes, uh, and which I just thought was the best. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, you know, it was great. And so N.K. Jebison um, wrote those lines. There's something about like composting in there. Great, great whole thing. But she actually gave it to one of her friends, like proofread, and be like, "Can you make sure I'm like rapping correctly?" <laughs> yes, because <laughs> you get clocked real quick out here. But I like, I like. Uh, Brooklyn, a.k.a. MC Free in the story because I think it does a delicate job. So uh, I'm not going to spoil this part, but well, there's nothing to spoil. Brooklyn, this character also has a daughter named JoJo and she lives with her dad. And named after Josephine Baker. Yes, yet. yes. And I, I like that we get to see this life after you've had your music career and you're still like a working mom and stuff like that because when we think about, and I, probably MC Light is doing the same thing. Like she, you know, unless you like really know hip-hop and music and underground like i think if you ask the average person on the street like do you know who mc light is can you sing one song they, they probably could not just because i mean they would probably he- they would hear her song well no i mean her okay, work okay. is still Go being off. give me one mc light song uh uh what is it it's uh it's it's sampled so if, if you heard it like her music has been sampled yeah, over and over i can't i can't name the song right but I, if i heard it i'd be like oh because i was listening to it yesterday i'm like okay yeah, I've heard this sample for the before. show. You were, but yeah, yeah. I'm saying, I'm saying, I think is, the average person might actually recognize some of some of her beats. Or no, for sure. I, no, she's legendary, but like, it's. But we can't name them. You're right. We, right, or or it's when you know, like the guy from Family Matters or whatever, like or uh, from the Cosby Show. You see him working at Trader Joe's. It's like when all of this fame is over with. I have to just find a job and go back to the grind and like if you're not an a-lister that's sort of like how it goes and so i think the book did a great job of showing like the 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 working man's uh burden after they're in the limelight you want to get into some size because there's only like yeah. one big one for me yeah i i don't really have any size um i i i love this book i love all of it and k jemison it is a it's a long book, four hundred page over four hundred pages, Ooh, yes. but actually I read this book, uh, I think almost as quickly as I read the fifth se- season, which is my favorite book of her, um, and it's it's fantastic. I mean, she does a lot of like fun narrative tricks. Uh, N.K. Jemison is known for doing these like narrative twists. Oh my gosh! Like the stuff in the back of the book. Remember when people were like calling to complain? 
Right. Yes. So, oh my, yes. If you, if you open the back of the- um, The Inheritance Trilogy. Oh, the Inherit, that was that was Oh, yes. Yeah. So N.K. Jemison does a lot of really fun stuff with books. But yeah, if you open the back of the book, there's like all this drawing and stuff on yeah. it. That's her drawing as one of the characters. But, you know, libraries were complaining like, there's somebody that wrote in the back of this book. Like, we need new copies. She's like, no, that's supposed to be there. Yeah. So, yeah. So in the Inheritance Trilogy, she creates a trickster god. And uh, she has all this like language, so there's a very long glossary at the end of each of uh, these novels. And at the final novel, the trickster god in this meta sense has gone back to the glossary and is like fucked with it and like crossed out names of characters that the trickster god hated. And it's just really, really like cool and exciting. But specifically in the Inheritance trilogy, the second book, I forgot the name of it. But she introduces a character, and you really don't realize uh, a a trait about this character until like halfway through the novel. And then in the first book of the fifth season, she pulls this trick um, that I'm not. I can't spoil. I just read it. It just is absolutely astounding. And so she's known for like doing these really beautiful uh, narrative um, play. The only thing I'll say is I didn't know when I started this book that it was going to be a trilogy. So, like, as these characters get all together and find each other, I was like, okay, we're, you know, I got 30 pages left. Like, when is this big, huge, epic, when is this big, huge, epic fight scene going to happen? I was like, Ben, this didn't happen at the end. And you were like, oh, because it's a trilogy. I was like, oh, I, I, so I, I didn't know that part. And now I'm like chomping at the bit for the next book to come out. But all in all, still a really great book. And also, if you listen to the audiobook, you know, people can talk shit on audiobooks all day, but I, I like them as a voice actor. I feel like I learn a lot. This voice actor was so good because she had to do, you know, an Indian accent for Podmini. She had to do New York accents. She had to do, like, Staten Island accents. Well, Podmini's accent is a New York accent. Well, in the book, it's Indian. Well, it's Indian because yeah. she's moved to New York right. and now becomes a New York accent. I just want right, to, like— I know. I know, know that, but yeah. I, if, if people are listening to the book, like, they're going to distinctly know, like, oh, this character is a— in. Indian, Indian. I, New Yorker. Yeah. Um, but, and the book, the, the audio book has some really great sound effects for when cool things happen. Like when, when you're entering those intergalactic spaces and those different dimensions, there's some insane audio book sound effects that you would really love. And with that being said, Ben, why don't you warp up the show, baby? In conclusion, read everything by N.K. Jemison. The city we became was by far the most accessible for folks who might not be like hardcore science fiction or um, horror or fantasy fans but i have to say i did enjoy the fifth season a little bit more than this one i I look forward to seeing what she's going to do but and hopefully she can top her broken earth trilogy and i think she can so i look forward to reading the next book thanks ben thank you so much for listening to another episode of the sci-fi side next week we sort of have a two for one we're going to be reading the short story the space traders by Derek bell and then there is a 30 minute adaptation of that short story also called The Space Traders, on YouTube, 1994. So we will be completely immersing ourselves in The Space Traders next week by Derek Bell. So be sure to check out episode 33. And also, y'all, keep those Apple ratings coming. We're going to be reading them at the top of the show. Until next time, bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V 
on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.